Good morning, Station Hill. It's good to see you all and to have this opportunity to open up God's Word together and, Lord willing, to get through Leviticus. Uh, my hope for us today is that once we get through Leviticus, we'll be able to see how clearly and amazingly it points forward to and prepares us for Jesus Christ. Uh, but before we turn to God's Word, I want to start our time with a question this morning. And my question for you is, what do you think God requires of you if you're gonna have a relationship with him? What does God require of you if you're gonna live in his presence forever? What do you need? What, what needs to be true about you? I wonder how you would answer that question. A couple common answers that I have heard in the past. Maybe you're the type who thinks that all you need is sincerity. Right? You, just, you just need to be a sincere person. You just need to be sincere and God will welcome you into his presence. All, all that God looks at and really cares about is whether, whether you're really sincere in your heart. Maybe you think the answer is being a good person. You just need to be good. Obviously not perfect because none of us is, right? But, but do good things. Help your neighbors. How about the poor every once in a while? Go, go to church. Make sure the good that you do outweighs the bad. Do that and God will accept you. Or maybe you've never thought about the question because who really cares? Right? If there is a God, surely he'll forgive us and welcome us into his presence because, because God is love, right? He's not gonna require anything of me. I wonder if you've thought any of those answers before or have heard other people say things like that. The reason I ask is because God actually gives a really clear and really definitive answer to that question. And the book in which he speaks most clearly and decisively about what is required of us if we're gonna have a relationship with him is the book of Leviticus. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible of your own, I wanna invite you to grab one of the copies that we provided. They're underneath the seat in front of you on the rack that you see there under the seat. You'll find Leviticus 19 on page 102 of the Bible we've provided. Uh, today's sermon is gonna be a bit different than normal. Normally we're located in one particular passage and trying to understand how that passage points forward to Jesus and what that passage means to us. But today, we're gonna fly over the entire book of Leviticus, right? We're gonna try to understand the whole thing and what the whole thing has to teach us about what God requires of us if we're gonna dwell in his presence forever. But listen, we only have like 35 minutes to get through this whole book. So this flyover is gonna feel like we're in an F-18 fighter jet. We're gonna be moving, because we got a lot of ground to cover. But I still think that we'll be able to get a good sense of the book and a clear answer to the question, what does God require of us if we're going to dwell in his presence forever? In fact, I know we're gonna get a clear answer to that question because the answer is repeated over and over and over throughout the book of Leviticus. And we're gonna hear that answer now as I read God's word for us. So I wanna invite you to stand with me 
in honor of the reading of God's word. I'm gonna be reading Leviticus chapter 19, verses one and two, which is really the main point of the book of Leviticus and the answer to the question, what does God require of you and me if we're going to live in his presence? This is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have made a way for unholy people to be made holy and brought into your presence through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see how in every way the book of Leviticus prepares us for him and how we should respond in light of what we learn about him. And we pray this all in his matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Friends, you can go ahead and be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, the main point of Leviticus for you and I today is that if we're going to have a relationship with God, if we're going to dwell in his presence forever, we must be holy because God is holy. If you wanna have a relationship with God and dwell in his presence forever, you must be holy because God is holy. That was the main point of Leviticus for the nation of Israel, and that's the main point of Leviticus for you and for me today. If we wanna have a relationship with God and dwell forever in his presence, we must be holy because God is holy. What we're gonna do with the rest of our time is just fly over the book. I'm gonna explain it as we go. Then we're gonna consider how Leviticus, I think, is mind-blowingly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then we're gonna consider two particular takeaways, two applications of how the book of Leviticus applies to us today. So let's go ahead and take a look at the book. I wanna encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you. This time will be probably a bit boring if you don't. Uh, I want to encourage you to also keep it open in front of you because we're going to be flipping through it, looking at different parts of Leviticus this morning. So go ahead and start off by turning with me to chapter 1, verse 1. If you're new to using the Bible, the big bold numbers in the Bible are the chapter numbers and the smaller numbers after it are the verse numbers. So you're looking for the big bold number 1 and then the smaller number one that comes after it. And as you're turning there, I wanna go ahead and remind you of where we are in the story, this story of God's relationship to the nation of Israel. Last week we considered how God powerfully delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. After that, God brings them out into the wilderness and then brings them to Mount Sinai where he gives them his law summarized in the 10 commandments. The people of Israel respond by receiving God's law and telling God, we will obey everything that you have commanded us. And God in response to their commitment to him makes a covenant with them. He makes them his very own people. He then gives them instructions to build the tabernacle, which is a large, ornate, movable tent that he would dwell within as they journeyed through the wilderness to the promised land. They then build the tabernacle, and when they finish, we read at the end of the book of Exodus that the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. 
God is dwelling with his people. Hooray! This is an exciting moment for the people of Israel. They've done all that God has commanded, and the glory of the Lord descends on the tabernacle and fills it, right? As exciting as that is, though, it's also clear that everything is not okay. If you're open, if you're open to chapter 1, verse 1, you could, should probably be able to look on the opposite page and see the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, verse 35. Look back there with, uh, with me real quick. Notice in chapter 40, verse 35 of Exodus, Moses is unable to enter the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord was there. Moses and the people of Israel were unfit to enter God's presence. Before they could enter the presence of a holy God, they also had to be made holy. And that's why we have Leviticus. Leviticus is God's instruction manual for the nation of Israel of how they could be made holy so that they could dwell in his presence. I want you to look at chapter one, verse one. You see that this problem still exists. God speaks to Moses from the tent. Moses and the people of Israel are outside of the tabernacle. They cannot come into the presence of God unless they are made holy themselves. And that's why we have the book of Leviticus. It's God's instruction manual for how the Israelites could be made holy so that they could dwell in his presence. And to help you better understand the book as a whole, I had a slide put together showing the overall structure of the book. You should be able to track with it on the screen behind me. I don't normally do stuff like this because it's usually not that helpful. Like who on earth wants to talk about the structure of Leviticus? Like, please, like my eyes are glazing over already. But I think in the case of Leviticus, you'll find it extremely helpful. Because what we find in Leviticus is that the content of the book has been arranged with a high degree of intentionality. There is a highly symmetrical design to the book that outlines how the Israelites were to be made holy and which eventually draws our attention to the focal point of the book, which is the Day of Atonement. We'll come back to that. But I want you to go ahead and look at the base of the pyramid of this symmetrical design. At the base of the pyramid, in the beginning chapters of the book and the ending chapters of the book, there are instructions about rituals that the people of Israel were to perform. These are the sacrifices and offerings that you read about in the first seven chapters of the book and the feasts and holy days that you read about in the final chapters of the book. I want you to look again with me at the beginning of chapter one. God's instructions for how the people of Israel were to be made holy begins with ritual offerings and sacrifices. If you're wondering what these seven chapters of instructions about different offerings and sacrifices are all about, they mean two things. They were the way for the people of Israel to say thank you to God for what he had done for them. They gave him offerings as a way to say thank you and they were a way for the people of Israel to say, I'm sorry to God, please forgive me for the sins that they had committed, right? These instructions begin in chapter one 
and they run all the way through chapter seven, just grain offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, like, oh my gosh, what, what is going on here, right? They run all the way through chapter seven. I want you to go ahead and turn to chapter seven with me. We're gonna look at verse 37 real quick. We're just gonna see how God ties a nice, neat little bow on these first seven chapters. He says to the nation of Israel, about the last seven chapters, this is the law for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship sacrifice. That's chapters one through seven, sacrifices and offerings. Then at the end of the book, on the other side of the book, we're not gonna turn there, in chapters 22 to 25, we find instructions about the ritual feasts and holy days the people needed to observe. Here's what this means for us. If the people of Israel were going to be made holy, they needed to give these offerings and sacrifices to God and observe the feasts and holy days that he gave to them. But we also see that if the people of Israel were gonna be made holy, they would need priests to represent them. So you just let your eyes track up that pyramid. So as we move up the pyramid, we find chapters dedicated to the priesthood, right? The priesthood was one of the most important roles in the entire Old Testament in the nation of Israel and something that we absolutely need to understand as Christians. These were the men who had the special privilege of representing the people of Israel to God and God to the people of Israel. And one of whom, the high priest, would enter into the very presence of God behind the curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. This high priest had the special and glorious and kind of terrifying privilege of once a year going into the Holy of Holies to bring the appointed sacrifices to God to stand before God on behalf of the people of Israel. Beginning in chapter eight, you can look there with me in your Bible. You see the ordination of Aaron and his sons. Chapter eight outlines the process that they had to go through to become priests. Then in chapter nine, their priesthood is inaugurated or it begins. I want you to look with me at the end of chapter nine. You're looking at verses 22 to 24. This is the actual inauguration event. These men who had just become priests might've been uncertain about whether God would accept them as priests and they come to bring their first sacrifice as priests representing the nation of Israel to God. They bring their first sacrifices to God in verses 22 to 23 and look at verse 24. Fire comes from the Lord and consumes the sacrifice. It was a success, praise God. He's accepted us as his priests. God accepted their sacrifice. Then in chapter 10, we find out that two priests die for disobeying God. And then God gives further instructions to the priest about how they're to live holy lives. Then in the second half of the book, the matching half to this first half, again, we won't turn there, in chapters 21 and 22, God gives more instructions to the priests about living holy lives. If they are going to represent God to the people of Israel, these priests need to be above reproach. They need to be holy men who are set apart to God's service. So see what's happened here already. If the people of Israel are to be made holy, they'll need to offer sacrifices to God and they'll need a high priest to represent them before God. 
But we also see that if they're going to be made holy, they need to be pure and holy in their personal conduct. So we move up the pyramid again. You see the section on purity. There are two matching sections, right? The chapters in the first half of the book contain laws related to the physical purity of the people of Israel. And the chapters in the second half of the book contain laws related to the moral or spiritual purity of the people. So take a look, beginning in chapter 11. You can just flip with me through chapter 15. This is how fast we are gonna move through these chapters. This is where we encounter laws about clean and unclean animals, clean and unclean birds and insects, where you get laws related to purification after childbirth, treating skin diseases, cleaning contaminated objects or homes that have mold, or dealing with bodily discharges. Basically, these are all of the laws that when you read the book of Leviticus, you're kind of like, what? Like, what is going on? I don't understand any of this. What is the point of these laws? But here's the point of these laws and what we're meant to take away. Because God is holy and set apart, if the Israelites wanted to enter his presence, they needed to be holy and set apart as well. This is what Leviticus calls clean or pure, the opposite being unclean or impure. But all of these things in chapters 11 to 15 in different ways are associated with mortality and death. And when you experienced them, you became impure, unclean, unable to enter into the presence of God. It's important to know in these 11, chapters 11 to 15 in Leviticus, being impure or unclean isn't necessarily sinful or wrong. Often these things were just a normal part of life. Like if you touched a dead body, you became unclean or impure. Well, well, what if that dead body is one of my family members and I need to prepare a funeral for them? I have to touch the dead body, right? Well, that's why God gives them a process by which if they are unclean or impure, they can become clean or pure again and enter back into his presence. But the big thing is a holy and set apart God does not have fellowship with unholy, unclean individuals. And what was definitely wrong is if someone who was impure or unclean barged into the presence of God while in a state of impurity, right? God's essence, his, his, his very essence is life, holiness, and perfect purity. So those who are impure can't come into his presence. That's the point of these chapters. Then in the second half of the book, the matching chapters on purity in chapters 17 to 20, we find laws related to the moral purity of the people. These were matters of sin and righteousness. You see numerous laws related to holiness, to sexual immorality, to the worship of false gods, and how to live just and upright lives, right? The people of Israel were to be set apart from the nations around them. Those nations engaged in things like sexual immorality, the worship of false gods, or treating people unjustly. And the Israelites were to show off the holiness of God by reflecting his holiness in their moral character, right? They were to live holy lives because the Lord, their God, was holy. And then we come to the top of the pyramid and the focal point of the entire book Chapter 16, you can go ahead and turn there with me. We're not gonna look super close at it, but it'd be good to have it open in front of you. 
what was needed to make the people of Israel holy. What was needed was atonement. See, the, the, the very heart of the book of Leviticus and the pinnacle of the pyramid that God is drawing our attention to and the way that he has structured the book of Leviticus is the day of atonement in chapter 16. Atonement, when someone or something absorbs our sins and takes them away from us, bearing the punishment we deserve. That is what's happening here in chapter 16. On the day of atonement, the high priest of Israel would sacrifice a goat and a bull to make atonement for the sins of the people. And he would then carry the blood of that sacrifice into the very holy of holies where the presence of God dwelled over the mercy seat on top of the ark. And you can even see how atonement was necessary for an unholy people to come into the presence of God because standing between that unholy high priest and the holy God was the blood of the sacrifice. That sacrifice that would atone for the sins, not only of the high priest, but also of the people of Israel. He would carry that sacrifice into the very presence of God himself to make atonement for the people of Israel. Then after offering the blood of the sacrifice, the high priest would come out of the tabernacle or out of the temple and they would bring out another live goat. And if you're reading Leviticus, you're kind of like, no, please don't, not another one, right? But this time that goat lived. They would take the live goat and the high priest of Israel would place his hands on top of the head of the goat and he would symbolically transfer the sins of the people of Israel to this goat, to this atoning sacrifice. And that goat would then be taken outside of the city gates, outside of the nation of Israel and sent out into the wilderness where that goat would bear the sins of the people of Israel away from them so that they could be made holy and brought into right relationship with God. And once that ritual sacrifice is complete, I want you to look at chapter 16, verse 30. Look at what God declares about his people. He says, after the day of atonement, atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you. And you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Track with me what's going on here in Leviticus. If the people of Israel are gonna be made holy, they need a sacrifice to atone for their sins and a high priest to enter into God's presence to offer that sacrifice on their behalf. And then after that high priest does that, they, the people of Israel, are called to live holy lives in response to the grace and mercy that God has shown them in providing a way for them to be made holy. And friends, I want you to notice this. Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement isn't just the center of the book of Leviticus. It isn't just the focal point of the book of Leviticus. It is the center of the entire Pentateuch of the entire first five books of the Bible. It's not just Leviticus that is intentionally organized and highly symmetrical, drawing our attention to the Day of Atonement. The first five books of the Bible are arranged the same way. Think about this, in Genesis, 
God's people break God's law and are cast out of his presence, cast out of the promised land. And then on the opposite side of Genesis, you have Deuteronomy, where God's people accept God's law and are brought back into his presence in the book of Joshua. Then you move up the pyramid and you have two books, the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, where God is exceedingly gracious with his people as they stumble and bumble around the wilderness, showing them time and time again that he is slow to anger and abounding in love and maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin for all who put their trust in him. And that brings us to the top of the pyramid of the Pentateuch, which is the book of Leviticus, and the top of the pyramid of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. God wants us to be crystal clear on this, to see as clearly as possible that the way an unholy people who have been cast out of his presence are made holy and granted access back into his presence is through atonement. The central event that makes Entrance back into God's presence is the day of atonement. When the high priest brings the blood of the sacrifice to God and lays his hands on the sacrificial goat who bears the sins of the people away into the wilderness. And what we find in Leviticus is that the day of atonement worked. Turn with me to the book of Numbers, which comes right after Leviticus. You'll recall that at the end of Exodus and beginning of Leviticus, the people of Israel and Moses himself is not able to enter the tent because the presence of God is there. God then gives them the instruction manual of Leviticus for how they can be made holy and come into his presence. Now look at the book of Numbers, chapter one, verse one. If you're using the Bible we provided, it's on page 112. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. At the beginning of Leviticus, Moses and the people were outside of the tent, unable to enter the tent. God spoke to them from the tent, but now God has made them holy through the process laid out in Leviticus, and Moses is able to enter into the tent. Leviticus worked. The people of Israel were made holy and can now come into God's presence and have a relationship with him. But unfortunately, that holiness was only temporary. In fact, at the end of Leviticus, in chapter 26, you don't have to turn there, God predicts that the people of Israel will eventually turn away from him. They will become just like the nations around them. They wouldn't live holy lives. They would engage in sexual immorality, the worship of false gods. They would not treat one another justly right, and God would eventually cast them out of the promised land like Adam and Eve before them. For true atonement to be made, for the people to become truly holy, a greater atoning sacrifice would be needed. More than that, a greater high priest would be needed who could enter into the very presence of God on our behalf to make us holy so that we could always dwell in God's presence. And friends, I hope you see that that is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to be the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he is the perfect atoning sacrifice because he lived a perfect life. He never sinned, not even once. He never 
broke any of the hundreds of laws that God gave to his people. I wonder if you've read through Leviticus and you've just thought, God, I am so grateful that I was not an Israelite who had to live under your law. Like it's like a ridiculous number of laws. There's no way I could keep all these laws. That is the point. There is only one who can, and he did. He perfectly kept them all for us, fulfilling the perfect righteousness and holiness demanded by God's law. But he not only lived the perfect life that we should have lived, he died the death that we deserved. Like the goat of Leviticus that carried the sins of the people out into the wilderness beyond the city gates, Jesus is the true sin-bearing sacrifice who carried our sins outside of the city gate, who carried our sins to Golgotha and to the cross at Calvary where he died for us. And three days after he died, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven as the true high priest. He went into the true holy of holies, the author of Hebrews tells us. Not the tabernacle made with ropes and yarns and things like that, but the true tabernacle of God into heaven itself. He went into the true holy of holies in the presence of God in heaven itself, not to offer God the blood of bulls and goats to cleanse us of sin, but to offer God the blood of his own perfect sacrifice to cleanse us from sin once and for all, to not only make us a holy people, but to guarantee that we who've trusted in him will always dwell in God's presence. And we know, we know that Jesus accomplished our salvation and has made us holy if we've trusted in him because the author of Hebrews tells us that after offering his perfect sacrifice for sins once and for all, Jesus did what? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. Why is that important? That's important because the priests of Israel never sat down because their work was never done. There were always more sins to be atoned for. There were always more sacrifices to be offered. There was always more work to do. They never sat down, but Jesus himself, after entering into the true holy of holies and offering the blood of his sacrifice as our high priest, sat down at the right hand of God, declaring for all to see that it is finished. There is no more work to be done. All who've trusted in him will be made holy and will be guaranteed to stay in God's presence forever. Through faith in his blood, Jesus has set apart and made holy all who have trusted in him. And the call for you and I now who've been made holy by Jesus's blood is to live holy lives. We're to be holy because God himself is holy. That is the drumbeat of Leviticus over and over again. Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Don't commit unjust acts for I am the Lord your God and I am holy over and over again. And this is why some of you might be thinking, wait, wait, John, are you saying that we have to keep all the laws of the Old Testament that are written here in the book of Leviticus? Praise God, no. But we do know that Leviticus applies to us because First Peter chapter one, Peter says in his letter, if we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, we're called to be holy because God himself is holy. And do you know what he cites? Leviticus chapter 19, verses one and two. Be holy, 
for God himself is holy. Friends, the first takeaway from Leviticus for you and I is that we should strive for holiness. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, said, we must be holy because this is the one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus came to save and set apart and sanctify a people from the world, uh, set apart a people from the world around us by us living holy lives. I wonder what you think about when you hear the word holy. What comes to mind? Or if I said to you, hey, imagine a holy person. What is that person like in your mind? I think one tragic effect of the fall is that we naturally have a wrong view of holiness. And I think even Christians can get this wrong. All right, what comes to mind when you hear the word holiness? If what you're thinking is drab, boring, gray, blah, or if you imagine a holy person as austere, severe, austere, that word just sounds like, ugh, austere, severe, strict, lifeless, dull. If, if, if that's what you're imagining, then you don't understand holiness. Holiness is an explosion of color. It is sensory overload. That that is why every time people come into the presence of God in his tabernacle, they're surrounded by smells that overwhelm them. Incense, amazing incense, drawing their nasal passages up to the Lord and their eyes are overwhelmed by the beauty that surrounds them. First in the weaving of the tabernacle in beautiful blues and purples and peaches and oranges and then everything in the tabernacle is overlaid with gold and then all on the gold or shining at the gold are candles everywhere, just creating this massive explosion for the senses. And then you get to the end of the book of the Bible when you get to Revelation and how is God's presence described? He resides on like a sea of diamonds, of emeralds and topazes and jasper and carnelian, right? Like the holiness of God is sensory overload. You cannot fathom how beautiful and glorious God is. And it's not just sensory overload, it is abundance. It is flourishing. It is true peace and true joy. It is joy abounding. The call to be holy is a call to enter into and experience the life of God in our own lives, right? The creator of the universe is not a boring God. I hope I don't have to tell you that, right? Our holy God is glorious and amazing and so worthy of being known. And he's calling us to enter into and experience his own holy lives in our lives today. And that holiness is something that we're to pursue in every area of our lives. As you're reading through Leviticus in our Bible reading plan, I wonder if you take note of how the laws God gave to Israel touched every part of their lives. Like, hey, if that cup becomes unclean, you need to clean that cup the right way. If you don't, you will become impure. You're like, cleaning cups? Like, really, Lord? But God is trying to teach us, like, hey, my holiness is not just the big things. It extends to the little things as well. That's why Peter says to the Christians that he wrote to, since God is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Right, we're empowered by God's spirit to display his goodness and glory by obeying his commands in every area of life. So in your dating relationships, be holy because God is holy. In your singleness, 
be holy because God is holy. In your work life, in your parenting, in your friendships, when you're online, when you're at the store, when you're at the gym, in all that you do, be holy because God is holy. In the new covenant, the covenant under which we live, we now pursue holiness, not by obeying the hundreds of laws that God gave to Israel, but by obeying the law of Christ, which Jesus said is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Quick trivia fact, what is Jesus's favorite book to cite in the New Testament? Leviticus, of all the books in the Bible, he cites Leviticus, the passage about love your neighbor as yourself over and over again, friends. And one of the things that I hope you note in Leviticus is that pursuing holiness is not just about not doing certain things. It's also about proactively doing good to others. This is why you see so many laws in Leviticus that are about proactively helping those in need, right? Like one specific law. If you're walking down the road and you see your neighbor's donkey lying in a ditch, don't ignore it. Help pick the donkey up. You're like, why do I need to pick the donkey up? Because that's your neighbor's means of income. Like if that donkey stays lying in the ditch, he's gonna lose a crucial part of his well-being. Not only that, but if your donkey was lying in the ditch, wouldn't you want your neighbor to help you out? This is what God is trying to teach the people of Israel. It's not just about abstaining from certain things. It's about proactively doing good to others. We reflect God's holy character when we see the needs in our neighbor's lives and seek to meet those needs by showing the love of Christ. So I wanna encourage you today, whether over lunch or in life group tonight, think about your neighbors who are around you, not just your immediate physical neighbors, but your extended family, coworkers, friends, right? Take time today to think through the people in your life and how you can proactively do good to them. Maybe as simple as a encouraging phone call or text. Could look like bringing them a meal or helping them out financially. Could look like a lot of different things. There's so many different, like the, the world is your canvas. You can do all sorts of things to do good to others, right? We wanna think through how to proactively do good to others with the bandwidth we have. How can you reflect God's holy character by pursuing others in love? Kids, I wanna get y'all's attention. This is not just for the kids, it's for the teens as well. You also can reflect God's holiness too. Uh, we're regularly telling our kids, see a need, meet a need, right? We want them to learn how to proactively identify needs in the lives of the people around them and then meet those needs. So kids, if you see your parents cleaning up around the house and you're just, you're chilling, you know, doing something else, just kind of hanging out, you can proactively go to them and say, hey, mom and dad, I'd like to help. If you have a younger sibling who's struggling with a toy or having some issue and, and you know that there's a way for you to help them, you can proactively go to do good to them. These are all ways that you kids can even participate in being holy because God the Lord is holy. But when we talk about loving our neighbor as part of pursuing holiness, we also have to remember that loving our neighbor, if they don't know Jesus, may also include telling them about their sin and God's holiness. It's crucial that we remember this because our culture has redefined love to mean unconditional support and affirmation of another person's choices. But as Christians, we need to remember that it is not loving to affirm something that God says will result in pain and sorrow and judgment. We can love people and still disagree with them. 
And when it comes to warning people about sin, that's the most loving thing we can do. So if you're here as a non-Christian, to my non-Christian friend uh, who, who may not trust in Jesus, I just wanna point out to you that God says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of his holy standard. And as a result, we are under his judgment. We cannot enter into his presence or have a relationship with him unless God makes us holy. Now, I recognize that that may sound off-putting to some of you. Like, like how, how could God require that I be holy to enter into his presence? Why can't I just be me? Why won't he accept me the way that I am? Those are understandable questions. I've even asked those questions myself in the past, but I bet this actually makes more sense to you than you realize. I want you to imagine with me that you have a child, whether you have a child or not, doesn't really matter. Just imagine with me that you have a child and there's an epic rainstorm outside of your house. Pouring down, the, the lawn gets soaked, your child goes outside and just creates a mud pit in all of the wet soil, just kind of digs it up, you know, churns it up and just makes a mud pit and is playing around in that pit and is covered from head to toe in mud. And then you see that same child start walking up the walkway to the house like you're gonna enter into the front door. What do you do? Stop, <laughs> do not come in here. If you come in this house, you are gonna track mud everywhere. You stay out there and I'm gonna come outside. I'm gonna bring a hose and a bucket and old washcloths and old towels, right? I'm gonna clean you up out there. I'm gonna make you clean out there and then you can come into the house where you won't track mud throughout it, right? If you, if you can understand that, then you understand Leviticus and you understand our problem with God, humanity's problem with God. We, we're not caked with mud, we're caked with sin, right? We are unholy according to Jesus and all of scripture. And we cannot come into the presence of a holy God unless that God comes out of the house to meet us and cleans us so that we can come into his home. And that is what he has done in Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus into the world to bear the punishment we deserve for our sins. So that if we put our trust in him, Jesus would bear those sins away off into the wilderness, never to be remembered again by God. And through his death and resurrection, if we trust in him, we can be made clean and enter into God's glorious presence, right? Think about Jesus and the leper in the New Testament. Leper comes to him and says, Rabbi, if, if, you will, if you will make me clean, can you do it? And Jesus says, I will be clean. He will do that for you today if you turn and put your trust in him. But inevitably, when we talk about striving for holiness, we also see ways we've fallen short. And so I wanna close with our second brief takeaway by encouraging you to rest in Christ. His perfect life, his death and resurrection have secured for you an eternal place in God's presence. He will lose none of those who have come to him in faith. This is why Jesus said in the New Testament, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You don't have to toil to earn God's favor. You don't have to do a bunch of spiritual things to get God to be pleased with you. You don't have to mistakenly assume that the book of Leviticus is teaching you, I need to get myself cleaned up before I come to God. That is not what it's teaching. God is saying, come to me. 
sins and all, caked in sins and all, and I will make you clean. I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus Christ, by his perfect righteousness, has opened the way for you to enter into the Father's presence, and he shares that perfect righteousness with you by faith. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland wrote the following that just connects so well with the book of Leviticus. He writes, look to Christ. He deals gently with you. It's the only way he knows how to be. He is the high priest to end all high priests. As long as you fix your attention on your sin, you will fail to see how you can be safe. But as long as you look to this high priest, you will fail to see how you could be in danger. Looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate only harshness from God. Looking out to Christ, we can anticipate only gentleness. He is our sympathetic high priest. Friends, fix your eyes on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, seated at God's right hand. He says to you that in him, you have rest for your souls. It's a rest that he gives to you now and a rest that you will experience eternally when he brings you into his holy presence forever. Let's close this time by praying and think about how we can respond to Leviticus. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you. and pray that you'd help us to respond to what we learned by, by just standing amazed at the fact that you even made a way at all. You did not have to make a way for unholy people to be made holy so that we could come into your presence and we praise you and help you, pray that you would help us respond by giving praise and thanks in the week to come. We pray also for those who are, who are here today who might be standing at a distance, recognizing their sins, recognizing that they have fallen short and believing that they just can't come into your presence. We pray that you would dispel that thought clearly from them, that they would know that if they come to you in faith and lay hold of Jesus by faith, you can and you will make them clean. And so we pray that they would respond by coming to Jesus Christ today and believing in him. We think of those who've, who've believed already but have not yet been baptized. What greater way to respond to Leviticus than, than coming forward to be baptized? to show that what has already happened in their hearts by faith in Jesus Christ, that you have already cleaned them, you're now gonna declare to the world through being baptized and following Jesus. We pray that those of us who've believed and been baptized would, would strive for holiness in the week to come. That we would look for ways to do good to others, whether our immediate neighbors or, or those that we come in contact with throughout the week. That we would seek to live holy lives and and show to others what your holy character is truly like. And as we stumble and fall, as we surely will, we pray that you would help us all to rest, to rest in Jesus Christ and to look forward to being brought into his presence forever. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen.